Welcome to Professor Charlene Hesbiber's podcast series. In our seventh podcast about her book, Waiting for Cancer to Come, she talks about how the women in her study cope with life after surgery and how they achieve a new normal. Quite a number of women use that term. What they meant and how they defined it was they want to go through what they see as a transitional journey from knowing that they had BRCA or were positive and then post-testing decisions they had surgery or the continuing surveillance. But especially those that have surgery, whether they have their ovaries removed along with their uterus and their breasts, physically coming to terms with reconstructed body, especially if you choose reconstruction, and many women in my study do. For some women, this recovery and healing and expanding their breasts, what they call expanders, takes around 18 months. Some women, of course, recover much early. It depends on what kind of reconstruction they have. You know, one was that I looked down at these new breasts and they felt so foreign to me. Coming to terms physically with new breasts It's really a journey for them. Yes, you stress it's not the Hollywood transformation that some women might hope for or think that it's going to be. Very often their arms remain swollen from lymphedema. Those that undergo a removal of their ovaries and uterus, a lack of estrogen, especially premenopausal women, can affect their sex lives. It can affect their mood swings. So it's not the process, what I would call the Angelina Jolie walking out with new breasts after seven or eight or nine weeks process. It's quite different. And there are everyday incidents, aren't there? Things that can happen that can cause upset. One of my respondents, for example, Hannah said, I had to come to peace with myself and what I've been through. It's tough. I'm still fragile. I still get upset sometimes. Like I was at a swimming party with a bunch of my friends and I walked outside and my nipple was hanging out of my swimsuit. But I had no idea because I couldn't feel it. I just try to let it roll off and laugh and move on. And and Hannah's in her mid-20s. She's beginning her life. Feeling comfortable in her new body, that's going to take time. Getting to a new normal means, especially with women that have their ovaries removed, premature menopause and becoming infertile which can be difficult for young women. One woman said to me she can no longer think about having children and nursing them. And and there's a kind of mourning that takes place physically and emotionally. I was quite interested to find out a bit more about Cynthia, for example. She's got quite a few regrets, even some years after having had surgery. She puts it this way. When I realized they had to take the nipples, it really horrified me. And I went to several doctors, several breast surgeons, and asked them if they could do it in any way by sparing my nipples. And they all pulled out the old research study showing me that if they do this, they might as well not do surgery at all because too many women get breast cancer from it. I was just told, no, she doesn't have nipples in her reconstructed breasts. And she says they're too big. She says they don't quite fit. Implants don't feel like normal breasts. So when I look at pictures of myself, it does bother me a little bit. They look fake. She has a journey still to go. Some women in the study do find real positives in their new normal, though, don't they? Surgical reconstruction gives them a way to have a chance to reclaim their bodies. And they have a chance to, they feel, make their breasts look as natural as possible. That's a word I hear a lot. I have a chance to be more natural or I have a chance to get the big boobs I always wanted. I could even get a bonus because if I decide to get this kind of reconstruction where I can take the fat from my abdomen and put it into my breasts, it'll feel more normal. I look better now than I did before. Women's breasts in particular are a very large part of their femininity. You're removing a very critical piece, as some women have told me, of your sense of femininity and and also 
of your sexuality. So women try really, really hard, when we're talking about integration, to get these things back. One woman said to me, I have to walk away from being in a relationship because I would be rejected. I couldn't imagine anyone being attracted to me without any, any of those female parts. The women not only have to find a new normal for themselves, in many respects they still they also have to find a new normal in their relationships with their husbands, their partners, their their wider family. This coming to terms with relationships, it can have positive outcomes and not so positive outcomes. For example, you have a bad marriage, you've shoved the issues with your husband under the rug, you have an infection in your breasts, you have drains coming out of both your breasts, and your husband is nowhere to be seen. You're wondering. He's just been unreliable about a lot of other things, but it's right in your face. It means you can't look the other way. And very often, some women, in fact, have divorced their husbands post-BRCA, post-surgery. It's facing also friends that didn't come through for you, even other family members that don't want to talk to you. On the other hand, you are surprised by friends you didn't know very well that are coming to the hospital every day to see you and bring you chocolates. Your husband is and your family is there too much. And you realize how much you love your husband, this supportive guy next to you. That's what I mean. And then there's the question around the women for whom pain continues to be a problem, sometimes for for many years to come. This kind of pain can impact their sexual life. Someone who undergoes an oophorectomy may not feel that they are ready to have sexual relations with their significant other. So it's adjustment period for some people. And some people do it well. And it depends on how severe the surgery is, how quickly you recover. It depends on so many other factors. You talk about those of the women who are, I love the term, you, you call them pre-vivers rather than survivors. What do you mean by that? And give us an example of someone in the book, in your study, who embodies that idea. If you take on this label, you are ready to tackle and survive cancer before it strikes. This is a state, this is a reality for you. So if we look at Erica, she kind of embraces pre-vivorhood. She accepts her BRCA status and tells me, quote, it will always be part of my identity. She's now in her late 30s, and she recently underwent a double mastectomy. As she explains it, her identity as a pre-viver was solidified as she looked for support from online communities. She says to me, I spent a lot of time, especially leading up to surgery, on the Internet. I asked a lot of questions, got incredible information. I really liked the website's Young Pre-Viver Forum. I resonated with the term previvor because women live with this condition of having a BRCA-positive gene mutation. And actually, if you ask them what their BRCA-positive diagnosis means, which I thought was quite interesting, they call it stage zero cancer. It's not a term that everybody takes seriously, though, is it? It's interesting because very often the previvors will tell you that they feel dismissed by the cancer community. In fact, one woman said to me she saw a split in this community between the pre-vivors and the survivors, those women that have cancer. And she's noticed a strong attitude among the survivors that trivializes being a pre-viver. And so there is this pre-viver state that is considered by some women as being inauthentic. 
So it's, it, it was an interesting phenomenon. Indeed. And from stage zero to stage four, because I want to talk a little bit about Cassandra, who had gone through stage four cancer and whose story I know had a very great effect on you. When I met her, she was in stage four. She had experienced two occurrences of breast cancer, first in 2001 and a reoccurrence of stage four cancer in 2004. I had some very definite stereotype views about what that diagnosis meant. And I really tried hard not to go in there with a certain point of view. I thought stage four meant that women were waiting to die. I really, really had to try hard to work against my own preconceptions. So how could I ask Cassandra about her new identity after surgery, I thought to myself, in chemotherapy? How could I ask her about how did she come to a new normal when I thought she was preparing to die? So finally, I asked her, what is it like to be in stage four? And she says, it's about hide and seek. My cancer is hiding and mutating. And my job is to snuff it out and destroy it before it destroys me. It's about living. I want to live. When you're in an earlier stage of cancer, what you think is, I just want to get the hell out of Dodge. You don't want to get your treatment and you want to get out of there. But when you're in stage four, you never get out of Dodge. And not only that, you find that you just bought a condominium in Dodge, a condominium with no resale value. And you can't get out of Dodge. You look around at some point in this condominium, in the city, where you don't really want to live, and you see you have these neighbors. And you say, even though this place totally sucks, I'm so glad you're my neighbor. And she does have this group of neighbors. They're called the Ivy Leaguers, which is really a triple entendre because it's like, the IV and, of course, the Ivy League and, of course, stage four is IV. So there are these women who live in Dodge with whom she can make her last stand. They want to be at peace. But she says to me, in Dodge, we have parties. We have fun. And what else is important to women in stage four? She says we must accept that we need treatment in order to continue our life. When treatment has ended, we know our days in Dodge are numbered, are marked, she says. Dodge City, then, is both a consolation and a reminder of a new normal. The most profound thing that I learned from Cassandra about getting at this normal state is that it's a balance between ignorance and knowledge, as well as acceptance and denial. The things you don't want to know, the things you want to know, the things you accept and the things you deny, because you can't live in Dodge City without that balance. Charlene Hespiber was talking to me, Chris Garrington, about her book, Waiting for Cancer to Come, which is published by the University of Michigan Press. In our final podcast on the book, Professor Hespiber talks about the importance of empowerment, shares some key messages for medical professionals and policymakers, and talks about where her research goes from here. This series is produced by Research Podcasts.